the end of Revelation 14, just trying to really pray, Lord, why is this here? What is your heart here? And I believe it's that the Lord just does not want us to live a life or have an eternity filled with regret. I really think that's the, the best way to look at this chapter and the end of it is God doesn't want us to live a life or much less have an eternity that's filled with regret. Uh, we go through different situations in life where we have regret. Maybe it's a loan. Maybe it's a bad business deal. Maybe it's how you applied yourself in school or business, a bad relationship, a bad marriage. But I think one area where many people experience regret it's in restaurants and what they order, right? I don't know what's worse, being the person that orders the wrong thing at the restaurant or being the person that orders the right thing at the restaurant and then everybody else just starts eating your food, right? And we go through those seasons. You're there, you're there, you take someone, you invite someone to an Italian restaurant and they ordered nachos or something like that, right? Like, you don't do that. This is what you should be ordering. And just the regret that happens. Here there's a regret that's an eternal regret that I believe God is trying to warn us. We're still here in this parenthetical statement, this big parentheses in Revelations 12 through 15. It stops the progression of all the events happening in Revelation. And now God is giving us the details of the who, the what, and the why, if you would. Chapter 13, we saw the bad guys, the Antichrist, the false prophet, and Satan himself. The beginning of chapter 14, we were introduced to the Lamb of God once again, to the 144,000, and to these three angels. This morning, we'll be looking at the last of the three angels, the tribulation believers or the tribulation martyrs, and these two sickles that will come to fruition here. In Revelation 14, verse 10, that's what we'll pick up on. And uh, we ran through this. I ran out of time, so I just ran through this. want to give this uh, the time it deserves. Verse 9, to get proper context, tells us, Then a third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image, and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, who worship the beast and his image, and who receives the mark of his name." We come to a topic that I don't really enjoy teaching on, right? It's the wrath of God. It's what hell is going to be like. And here, Revelation 14 is warning us, it's warning anyone that will be here during the Great Tribulation to not take the mark of the beast, to not worship the beast, to not worship the Antichrist, because if you do take that mark, you will be forced to drink of the cup of the wrath of God, which will be at full strength. It won't be mingled, it won't be watered down, there'll be no more grace attached to it, there'll be no more mercy attached to it, it will be the full unbridled wrath of God. And anyone who takes the mark of the beast, they will taste of this. And we must consider in this life and in the life to come, whose wrath are we willing to endure? Whose wrath are we willing to endure? Sometimes we make our decisions, sometimes we make our social decisions like that. You get invited to two places, first you think of where you really want to go, 
And then secondly, you think of where will I get the least amount of backlash for not going, right? Maybe that's how you judge your Thanksgiving, right? Which mother-in-law is going to kill us more if we don't attend, right? No, none of you, that's how you judge your Thanksgivings or your Christmases. But we need to judge in this life, whose wrath would I rather endure? Because Matthew chapter 10, verse 28, Jesus warns us to not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And here the warning is for those people during the great tribulation that in order to appease, in order to not taste of the wrath of man or the wrath of the Antichrist, they're going to take the mark of the beast. Maybe a business decision they want to be able to buy or sell. They may want to feed their family and their home. But God is warning us to not make decisions and just fearful of what man can do to us, but rather take into account the one, the being that can destroy us both in this life and in the life to come. That's what we should be considering each and every day as we go about our day. Here in Revelations, it tells us that there is a cup of wrath. This word in the Greek is the Greek word thumos. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing it. But it literally means smoke. It's speaking of the boiling indignation of God. His lasting wrath which will be executed for the purpose of his vengeance. No one wants to taste of this. In Matthew 58 verse 10 and 11, it tells us that the righteous shall rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He shall wash his feet in the blood of the wicked. So that men will say, surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is God who judges in the earth. You see, a perfect and a loving God must execute vengeance for those who are willing to die for him. Some people say that there's no judgment in the Bible. Right? I don't know if you ever heard someone say that. You can't judge me. It says it in the Bible. This is a judgment-free zone. Only God can judge me. If someone's ever told you, right, Jesus would never judge. Jesus is just love. And the Bible teaches the total opposite. Let's turn to John chapter 5. And in John chapter 5, verse 24, we will see that God has given the authority of judgment to no one else but Jesus Christ. The authority, the right to judge all of mankind is given to Jesus Christ himself. So John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own, but the will of the Father who sent me. 
Again, Jesus here, he's telling us that the only way to not go through the judgment and the wrath of God, the only way that we can keep ourselves from drinking that cup of the wrath of God is by believing in God the Father who sent Jesus Christ. Maybe you're reminded of John 3.16. Who's the one that sent him? John 3.16 tells us, For God so loved the world that he gave, he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus continues to tell us that God has given Jesus the authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. We'll see more on this title, the Son of Man, in verse 14. Jesus tells us those who have done good, they will receive the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil, the resurrection of condemnation. That is, the resurrection of damnation, the resurrection of judgment for all of eternity. Again, it's, it's bad enough to have to die, right? I don't think anyone really looks forward to death. But now to have to go through all the pain of death and then wake up in hell for all of eternity. You don't want to resurrect into that. You see, Jesus will judge and his judgment is righteous. He can't be bought. He's not a dirty cop. He's not a dirty, a dirty judge or a dirty attorney. He's going to judge and his judgment is righteous. He will render to each person their due. No matter how we try to hide, no matter how we try to run from it. Second Chronicles chapter 25, verse 4 tells us, A person shall die for his own sins. Romans chapter 6, verse 23 tells us, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This gift of eternal life was purchased by Jesus for us. This Jesus, who is one day going to be the judge for all of mankind, is the one, is the being who is willing to take on the cup of the wrath of God to save you and I and to save the whole world. And yet the whole world, those that turn their faces hard against the Lord are going to have to stand before Jesus Christ and tell them why they didn't believe in him. Matthew 26 verse 39 as Jesus is in his hour of greatest agony, greatest difficulty, he's under so much stress that his blood vessels are exploding, mingling with his sweat glands. And it tells us that he went a little further. He fell on his face and he prayed saying, Oh, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. You see, this cup that had Jesus so stressed out, this cup that had Jesus so broken was the cup of the wrath of God. And Jesus' desire was to not take it. His desire was to not drink it, but he was about his Father's business. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Again, Jesus, he takes our very worst and he gives us his very best. That's what he's done for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3 tells us, Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin, he was perfect, he became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 
who himself bore our sin in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. Again, the only way we're healed, the only way that we're saved, the only way that we get to have fellowship with God is by the pain and agony that Jesus Christ went through. Finally, Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 tells us Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. The way Jesus washes us from our sins, the way he cleanses us from our sins is by his own blood. And now we should ask ourselves, who can survive this judgment? Who can survive this judgment? The one that took the cup of the wrath to save all of mankind. People are going to have to stand before him that were unwilling to submit and humble themselves and follow Christ. Imagine if you would, and again, this, this analogy falls short, but imagine if you were guilty of a crime. Some of us, it's easier to imagine than others, right? But, but imagine you're guilty of a crime, and you're 100% guilty. They have your phone records. They have you on, on recording. You're talking to an FBI agent or CIA agent. They have the whole recording of how you planned it. They have you on camera, the whole entire shows on YouTube of exactly what you did and how you did it. And there's no way of hiding. You're 100% guilty. And now you come, you meet the judge for the first time. And for whatever reason, the judge is so filled with love for you that he decides to pay your penalty. He decides to take on all of the punishment you deserve because you're on camera, because you're recorded on the phone. He pays off all your fines. But the only way he can do this is by sending his only son. His only kid, he's got only one kid, and he sends him to pay all of your fines, to take all of your penalty. He goes to prison for life to save you. All the judge asks is that you have a friendship with him, that you follow him, and you believe in him, and go and sin no more. How often Jesus would tell that, don't do the same crime again. Go and sin no more. And you live a life, you have a little bit of freedom, and then you come to the final hearing and you tell that judge that had so much love on you, I didn't do anything wrong. There's really no penalty here. There's no harm. There's no foul. The price that you paid, that's not real. All that you've done for me, that really didn't happen. That's just fairy tales. In fact, you tell him to his face that he's just an imaginary person for a crutch for other people. How will you be able to survive that judgment? Who can survive the wrath of the Lamb, as Revelation tells us? He's already paid that price. He can't take that back. He's already died. He's already bled. He already left heaven and left this eternal body that he had, this eternal godly body, and now he's forced to be in a human body like us. He has a new body like we're going to have, but before that, he existed for all of eternity. There's no way for him to take back what he's lost. He's shown mercy, he's shown grace, he's shown love, and we just throw insults to injury. We say it's not worth it. After all Jesus has gone through to save the world, after all of his sacrifice, who can stand his judgment? Who's going to be able to survive the cup of wrath that he was already willing to take for us for the people that say, ah, that doesn't really exist. That's not really out there. 
couple of scriptures here on the cup of the wrath of God. Psalm 75 or 7 and 8 tells us that God is the judge. He puts down one and he exalts another. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup and the wine is red, it is fully mixed and he pours it out. Jeremiah 25, verse 15 and 16. It tells us, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Take this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you to drink it. And they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send among them. Isaiah 66, verse 23 and 22 tells us that it shall come to pass from one new moon to another, from one Sabbath to another, all flesh shall come and worship me, says the Lord. And they shall go forth and look upon the corpses of the men who have transgressed against me. For their worm does not die, and their fire is not quenched. They shall be in abhorrence to all flesh. You see why I don't like really teaching this that much, right? But it needs to be said. we got to go through all of Scripture. And here God is revealing to us the reality of hell. Isaiah 66, right, it tells us that the worm does not die. The fire is not quenched. Back in Revelation 14 now, it tells us, He shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. You see, today there are those that say hell is not a real place. You have people that are so-called pastors and they say, hell, that's not for humans. That's not for human beings. That's only for Satan and for the demons. There are those that have written books. In the end, love wins. Everybody's going to go to heaven. No one's really going to go to hell. There are some that say, hell, it's only for a short time period. You go through all this torture, all of this pain, and then your soul will just disintegrate, disintegrate and you'll no longer exist. But that's not found in Scripture. What scripture tells us is that hell is a real place and there's going to be torment. There's going to be constant torture. Everyone in hell will be disturbed with heavy and severe pains of body and mind with fire and sulfur for all of eternity. The end of verse 10 tells us that it will be done in the presence of the angels and in the presence of the Lamb. The presence of Jesus Christ will be there. I think I've even made the mistake of saying that hell is the absence of God, the absence of the presence of God. But here Revelation tells us that the presence of Jesus Christ will be there in the midst of those who are in hell for all of eternity. In the midst of all that pain, all that torture, all that torment, their flesh being eaten by worms for all of eternity, there will be a constant reminder that Jesus had already paid this price for them. Jesus already underwent all of this pain and torture for them. Again, the regret there. Nothing but their pride kept them from accepting the free gift of salvation. It was just their pride. The love of money, the love of this world, wanting to be liked by mankind. It kept them from humbling themselves and accepting the salvation of Jesus Christ. David Guzik tells us this shows that God is not absent from hell. He is present in all his holiness and in all his righteous judgment. Those who are in hell wish that God was absent, but he will not be. It is wrong to say that hell will be devoid of the presence of God, but it will be without any sense of his love. 
The presence of Jesus will be there, but it will only be the presence of his holy justice and wrath against sin. One of the ways we can know that we're a believer is we begin to have the peace of God dwelling in our hearts. That no matter the difficulty, no matter the trial, there's a, there's a peace, a calming peace that surpasses all understanding. No matter the health issue, no matter how much you pay for gas, no matter how much you pay for butter, right? There's just a peace in you because of the hope of Jesus Christ. That's a part of being a believer. But here it tells us that in hell, there's no peace of God. There's just the justice and wrath and hatred of God against sin. Verse 11 tells us the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast and his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Again, the context here, it's warning those people during the great tribulation do not accept the mark of the beast or his image. It warns us today, do you have a true and real relationship with Jesus Christ? Because if you don't, their torment, right, the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever. Hell does not just last for a brief period of time, but it lasts forever and ever and ever. Here in the Greek, it is literally into the ages of ages. And we hear of different soldiers that have gone through torture, right? They go through the torture of war for six months. Maybe they're captured and they're captured. They're a POW for a year, two years, three years. And we hear of the atrocities, but they get out. They're free. Imagine torture, not for two years, not for three years, not for 10 or 20 or 80 years, but torture for all of eternity. For the rest of your existence is nothing but constant torture. It tells us they have no rest day or night. They're torturers. They never are tired. They never take a break. They never have to sleep. There is constant torture in heaven for all of eternity. We don't really like thinking about this, right? Taking time to meditate on what hell is going to be like. John Trapp tells us, Would to God men would everywhere think and talk more of hell and of that eternity of utmost degree that they shall never else be able to avoid or to abide. Surely one good means to escape hell is to take a turn or two in hell by our daily meditations. Right? Today, a lot of people talk about meditation, right? Oh, I take an hour to meditate each morning, right? But to take time to meditate on what hell is going to be like. It'd be good for us. Next time we're tempted, next time that girl calls you or that guy calls you, it'd be good to meditate on what hell is going to be like. Each time we want to make an excuse for our sin, it would be good to meditate on the price that Jesus paid for us. And then examine our lives. Again, those who take the image of the beast, those who worship the beast, it will not be an accident. It won't be a whoopsie-daisy. They, they won't be tricked into it. We read last week how there will be an angel circling the globe warning all of humanity to not take the mark of the beast. Warning humanity, don't worship the Antichrist, but instead worship the God who created heaven and earth. They will receive no rest day or night, just continual torment and torture. And then compare and contrast what heaven's going to be like. 
What doesn't have any rest day or night? The four living creatures. It tells us that they don't rest day or night singing what? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. What would you rather be listening to for the rest of eternity? The worship songs that we just sung? What that felt like? What that seemed like? Or hearing the screaming of billions of people for the rest of eternity? What would you rather hear? A.R. Fawcett tells us the lost have no rest from their sin and from Satan, terror, torment, and remorse. Now in verse 12, we get a comparing and contrasting here. You see, those who did not want to taste of the wrath of mankind, they're going to taste of the wrath of God for all of eternity. But here in verse 12 and 13, we see those who are more concerned about not tasting the wrath of God Perhaps they're even wanting to bless the Lamb of God and how they undergo the wrath of the Antichrist and the wrath of mankind. But in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, they go from pain and agony to no more tears and no more crying and no more pain. Verse 12 and 13 tells us, Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Right? Are we reading this right? Blessed are the dead who die? Is this anyone's favorite beatitude, right? Anybody have a tattoo on them? Blessed are the dead who die, right? What's your life verse? Blessed are the dead who die, right? Just so blessed to die today, right? This seems absolutely insane from our perspective. Blessed are the dead who die. Lord, what are you talking about here? But here we receive heaven's perspective. And we as sons and daughters of God, we as sons and daughters of heaven, we should have heaven's perspective. It's better to go through difficulty here on earth and enjoy heaven for all of eternity than to rather succumb to the fear of man and succumb to the fear of all the what-ifs. What if this happens? What if they start talking? What if I lose my job? What if I lose my family and spend eternity in torture in hell? And that's why it tells us here, this is the patience of the saints. And we need patience. We have need of endurance. Again, God is here encouraging those great tribulation saints. God is saying, right, put this on record forever and ever to encourage these saints. But not only do the great tribulation saints need this encouragement, we today, we need this encouragement because we need patience as well so that we can say the same thing, that we would be able to keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus Christ. Are you keeping the commandments of God in your life? How did you do this week, right? Husbands, how did you love your wives this week, right? Are you keeping the commandments of Jesus Christ? Sons and daughters, wives, each and every one of us, the way we treated our bosses, the way we treated our government, are we praying for our government? So many different things. How are we obeying the commandments of God? We read Hebrews chapter 10 last week. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 36 tells us, For you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. 
But if anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. You see, if we're truly saved, the faith that we receive is the faith of Jesus Christ, which is an enduring faith. We're not going to have a faith or relationship with Jesus Christ that's a roller coaster, right? So many of us, we spent so many years of our walk with God on a roller coaster. High highs, low lows. High highs, low lows. And that is a relationship that perhaps isn't a relationship at all, but just emotion. We're just running on emotions. And that's why it goes up and goes down. Our our marriages shouldn't be like that. Today I love my wife. Tomorrow I want to absolutely kill her, right? It shouldn't work that way. It shouldn't work that way. It should be just steadily growing in love more and more and more. Growing in respect for one another more and more. And that's the same in our walk and relationship with God. There should just be a steady progression and growth. There's going to be dips. There's going to be difficulty. But there should just be this constant looking more and more like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1. Famous scripture. Let's turn there real quick. Hebrews chapter 11 is this great hall of faith. All of these spiritual giants that we would call and we see how they were obedient to the Lord and they took these great steps of faith. That's why then in Hebrews chapter 12 verse 1 it says, Therefore, that means looking at everything these men and women did, therefore we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us again we have need of endurance in our walk and relationship with Jesus Christ Matthew chapter 10 verse 22 tells us you will be hated by all for my name's sake but he who endures to the end will be saved he who doesn't turn back he who doesn't give up he who endures to the end will be saved In Luke chapter 8, we get this great parable of the sower and the seed. The good ground and all of the bad grounds, the follow grounds. And which was the good ground? Jesus tells us in Luke chapter 8 verse 15. The ones that fell on the good ground are those who having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. They bear fruit with endurance. Finally, James chapter 5 verse 11 Gives us someone in scripture that we can hope to emulate. Which I don't think many of us hope to emulate. But there in James chapter 5 verse 11 tells us, Indeed we count them blessed who endure. You have heard of the perseverance of Job and seen the end intended by the Lord. That the Lord is very compassionate and merciful. Right? I know I'm not the only one here. You're going through your daily Bible reading and you hit the book of Job. And all of a sudden you just become a speed reader. Right? Just blow through it. You don't want to read that chapter. You put it on the Bible app. You listen to it at three times speed and you just get through it. You don't want to hear all of his pain, all of his trial, all of his torture. And yet Job endured. He didn't give up on the Lord just because he went through difficulty. How many of us, we've lost everything. All of the business, all of the savings, all of our kids, all of their wives, all in one day. I pray not many of us. Job goes through all of this, then he goes through all of his health, crashing and plummeting, and he never curses God. He continues to be patient and endure in his walk and relationship with the Lord. Now again, the true context of Revelation 14, 
God is encouraging those great tribulation saints. But we would make a mistake if we wouldn't realize how much we need patience and endurance as well. We need patience and endurance so that we'd keep the commandments of God no matter the trial or difficulty and that we'd have the faith of Jesus Christ no matter what's going on around us. That word patience is persevering endurance. It's enduring no matter what. It's the characteristic of a man who is unswerved from his deliberate purpose and his loyalty to faith and holiness by even the greatest trial and suffering. We can, we can think of Jesus Christ. It tells us that he set his face like a flint towards the cross. He didn't shake. He didn't waver. He didn't say, forget this. It's not worth it. No, he set his face like a flint. Because he was thinking of the joy set before him. He was willing to endure the cross, despising the shame. That endurance is a continuing existence. It's just a continuing existence. That doesn't sound super exciting, does it, right? Hey, in Jesus Christ, you need to just have continuing existence. You just got to be steady, Eddie. That's what it's telling us here. We can look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 24 and 25, and Jesus gives us the parable of two houses built on two different foundations. In verse 24 of Matthew 7, he tells us, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. You see, it's not enough to just come to church. It's not enough to just hear the word of God. Jesus tells us it's whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. We have to be obedient. If we're not being obedient to the text, nothing's going to change in our lives. Jesus says that he will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. And it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. You see, you know who has the greatest endurance out there? It's Jesus Christ. He has a continuing existence. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And that's why we should build our lives upon him and upon his word. And then we're to emulate him. We're to be conformed to his image. We should have that same continuing existence. And rocks are great at endurance. Have you ever tried to punch a rock, right? Who stays there better, right? Who's just hanging out? Nothing's wrong. If you ever had to dig a hole in Miami, right? What happens after three inches? You start hitting coral rock right away. And that rock, it exists there fine and dandy, no matter what you bring to it, right? And sooner or later, you're exhausted, you're tired, and you've got another six inches, right? Take a day off, and then you dig another six inches. And it just continually exists. And that's how our walk and relationship needs to be with the Lord. Just a persevering endurance. A steady eddy. We're here. Nothing's changed. Been five years, ten years, ups and downs. But I'm just enduring with Jesus Christ. Then in verse 13, right, we read this. This voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works follow them. Again, for the unbeliever, earth is the best that they're going to get. It's a pretty sad existence if you really sit back and think about it, right? This planet, what's going around today, is the absolute best that the unbeliever will taste of. But for us, for the believers, for those 
Great tribulation believers, it tells us that they will rest from all their labor. They're going to be able to rest from all their work and their works follow them. Again, that tells us that our work, right, it goes before us and it follows us into heaven. Who we were, what we did for the Lord, our works will follow us. And it tells us that they are blessed, right? In Matthew 5, we get the Beatitudes, but here in Revelation, there's certain Beatitudes as well. Tells us, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. They will be blessed because they will rest from their torture, pain, and difficulty. They'll be going through all of this torture, all of this stress, and once they die, they're in perfection. New glorified bodies. The old is gone, the new has come, right? The joy of the Lord. They will be blessed because they'll be resting from their persecution. No more running, no more hiding, no more fear. All of that is gone. They're blessed because they'll be gathered together with the rest of the saints. We'll all be in heaven together, singing and glorifying the Lord, doing the work of God. They will be blessed because they'll be soon seated at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Right? Talk about an after party. Talk about a feast that you want to be at, a meal you want to be at, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation gives us a couple of these other beatitudes. Just mentioned the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 19.9 tells us, Blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Revelation 20 verse 6 tells us, Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and they shall reign with him a thousand years. We are blessed and holy if we get to partake of that first resurrection. We don't have to die twice. We only die once and then live again for the rest of eternity. Finally, Revelation 22 verse 14 tells us, Blessed are those who do his commandments. How simple is that one? Blessed are those who obey. That's what he told us with the parable of the two foundations. Those who hear these sayings and do them, their house will be built on the rock. Blessed are those who do his commandments that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. Now in verse 14 through the rest of the chapter, we see this great harvest that Jesus talks about. We'll look at those verses in a moment. Revelation 14, 14, it tells us John, once again here, he looks. There's another scene taking place in the middle of this list of bullet points for him to know. Verse 14 says, Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud sat one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out of the temple, crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. We see Jesus, he uses this nickname here, one like the Son of Man. And this is Jesus' favorite nickname throughout the Bible. In the Gospels, it appears 80 times. He calls himself the Son of Man. Again, his favorite title is being one of us. That's how much Christ loves us. But this title, it's taken from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel says that he's watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. 
And he came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Speaking of Jesus Christ thousands of years earlier. But here it tells us the Son of Man, he's going to have on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. The crown here is not the word that we've used earlier, diadems, which is a royal crown. A crown that's given to someone just because their father is a king or their mother is a queen. Here the word crown is speaking of the victor's crown. It's a crown that someone has won going through battle and difficulty and coming out victorious. And this is how Jesus, he's going to rule and reign for all of eternity. This is how Jesus comes to judge all of humanity. It's with the crown of victory. He's defeated sin, he's defeated death, and he's going to come and defeat the world system once and for all, defeat the Antichrist, the beast, and Satan for all of eternity. Charles Spurgeon says how different it will be to see him with a crown of gold upon his head from what it was to see him wearing that terrible crown of thorns with blood upon his brow. The word used here does not usually refer to the diadem of power, but to the crown one in conflict. And it is very remarkable that it should be said that when Christ comes to judge the world, he will wear the garland of victory, the crown which he has won in the great battle which he has fought. How significant of his final triumph that crown of gold will be about those brows that were once covered with bloody sweat when he was fighting the battle for our salvation. Friend, don't get it twisted. Jesus is no longer wearing that crown of thorns, but one day he will wear a crown of gold because he is victorious. Because he is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Oftentimes we still have him painted upon the cross. He's on our necklace. They're crucified, still weak, still beaten, still bruised. That is no longer our king. He is ruling and reigning in heaven forevermore. And he's waiting for the moment his father says, go and get them. That's who he is today. Verse 15 tells us the other angel comes out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Thrust in your sickle and reap, for the time has come for you to reap, and the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Here the angel's not commanding Jesus, that, that would make no sense, but the angel here is simply announcing what the will of God the Father is to his Son and to the rest of mankind. This prayer that we've been praying for so long, God, how long will this injustice and wrong and sin and evil take place? This prayer will finally be answered. The harvest of the earth is ripe. It's speaking here, right? We could think of summers in Miami. It's not speaking of that perfect orange, red mango on the tree. That's not what it's speaking of here. It's speaking of something that's overripe. It's when you buy grapes and you didn't realize you also bought half a bag of raisins at the bottom of the grapes, right? It's a fruit that's been on the vine so long, it's gone bad. And this is to reveal to us the long suffering of God, the grace and mercy of God. Because if we're honest, the moment we get saved, we say, yeah, forget everybody else. Jesus, let's get out of here, right? A week ago, a year ago, when I was in the middle of sin, I didn't want Jesus to come, but I'm saved. I'm right. Lord, come today, right? 
But God is long-suffering. We could look at Peter. We don't have time, but how Peter says he's long-suffering. That's why one day is like a thousand to him. That's why he hasn't returned yet. Don't allow people to mock that he hasn't returned yet. He's just being gracious and merciful and loving to all of these sinners, just as he was gracious and loving and merciful to us. You see, God doesn't judge in time, but God judges based on sin and iniquity. And he's waiting for that sin and iniquity of the world to get to a certain point, which we think, Lord, how can it get any worse? But he's waiting for that sin and iniquity to get to a certain point where it's already broken past what God is willing to allow here on earth. In Genesis 15, verse 16, God promising Abraham that one day his generations will take the promised land, God tells them, hey, it's going to be in the fourth generation that they're going to return for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Their iniquity, their sins, it's not full yet. So we're going to wait till I give them grace, I give them mercy, I give them kindness, but it's going to get to a point where their sins and iniquities, it's so full that then I will allow my people to go in Take the land and judge these people. Jesus speaks of this great reaping in Matthew chapter 13. Let's turn there. Matthew chapter 13, Jesus speaks of this great eternal harvest where all of mankind are going to be harvested and they're going to be split and only into two groups. All these different groups, all of these different sects, all of these different little tiny subgroups, right? None of that's going to matter. All of mankind is going to be separated in only two groups. Matthew 13, verse 24. It says, Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and he went his way. But when the grain had sprouted, and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First, gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them. But gather the wheat into my barn. Again, the great separation there. The unbelievers, the tares, those that look like wheat, and however they are tares, they'll be gathered together and thrown into the fire for all of eternity. But the wheat, his own people, the one that he's sown, he's going to reap and bring them into his own barn. We jump back to Revelation 14, verse 17. And we see this final harvest, right? This is where we get that saying, the grapes of wrath. The bad news bears, if you would, right? Revelation 14, verse 17, we see another angel with another sickle. Jesus, he has the first harvest. And now he sends another angel in verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven. He also having a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, who had power over fire. And he cried, out with, he cried out with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Thrust in your sharp sickle, and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth, 
for her grapes are fully ripe. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trampled outside the city and blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridles for 1,600 furlongs. We see these two angels, they come out of the temple that's in heaven. One comes out of the temple and the other one comes from the altar itself. You could be reminded, if you're quick, in Revelation chapter 11, just a couple pages to the left, we see here, it tells us in verse 18, that the nations were angry. Your wrath has come and the time of the dead, that they should be judged and you should reward your servants, the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, small and great, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in the temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, and earthquake and great hail. So one angel is coming out of the temple there in heaven. The second angel, a couple more pages to the left, Revelation chapter 8. Right? Remember, we're in this parentheses, these bullet points. But now back to Revelation 8, verse 3, tells us another angel having a golden censer came and stood at the altar and he was given much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints ascended before God from the angel's hand. So one angel comes out, he has a sharp sickle, the other angel comes out from offering up the prayers of the saints. And it seems as if our prayers are finally going to be answered. Lord, how long? We, we think of those saints, right? We don't go through much difficulty here because of our, our faith. Maybe some of us have, but we think of believers in the Middle East. You think of believers in China. You think of believers around the world. Those that have seen their wives raped and murdered in front of them. Those that have seen their children raped and murdered in front of them. All because they were unwilling to leave the name of Christ. And they go through all of this torment on earth. And they pray, Lord, how long? How long will you allow this to happen? How long will you allow these atrocities and injustice and evil to happen? And one day these two angels will come out of heaven, out of this temple, and our prayers will finally be answered. And they will thrust in their sharp sickle and gather the cluster of the vine of the earth, for her grapes are fully ripe. The grapes are, they're exploding with how ripe they are with juice. And the fully ripe here is that they are fully ripe for judgment. They are fully ripe for judgment. And notice, what's cut off here? It's the vine of the earth. We know that Jesus tells us that if we're saved, we abide in the vine. And who's the vine? He's the vine. We're the branches. So where are we abiding? Are we abiding in the vine of Jesus Christ? Are you abiding with him? Are you spending time with him? Are you spending time in his word? Are you abiding in the vine of the earth? Your abiding is just in this world, in this world's systems, in just the rat race, in the money, in the social media, in the news. What are you abiding in? Which vine are you plugged into? There's a great warning there for us. 
Verse 19, the angel thrust his sickle into the earth. He gathered the vine of the earth, and now he throws it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. Again, it's speaking of grapes that have grown in prime, almost bursting with juice. And the bursting is not juice. It's going to be the blood of the enemies of the Lord. That's what it tells us in the last verse here. One commentator said, What strength have grapes against the weight and power of a man when he comes to set his feet upon them? The more ripe they are, the more helpless they are. And on the heel of omnipotence, when it's upon them, they can only break and sink beneath it. Right? I don't think anyone here has a problem crushing a grape, right? Anybody struggle here? Ah, right, trying to break a grape? It's easy for us. And how much more will the wrath of God come against these men and women that have forsaken his name for years and years and years? A couple of Old Testament prophets, they prophesy about this specific instance. Joel chapter 3. Verse 1 and 2, it tells us that in those days and at that time, when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and I will bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. So we sit back, we think about this, right? When I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem... What is God talking about here? The nation of Israel today. We've seen Israel come back to be a country and a nation within our lifetime. They were scattered all over the world. And then in the 40s, they're brought back into the land of Israel. So it's anytime soon, right? And then here he's going to bring all of these people, all of the enemies of Israel, into judgment into the valley of Jehoshaphat. There, that's the Valley of Megiddo. If we get to go to Israel next year, we'll be able to go there and look at this valley. And he's going to allow all the enemies to come against Israel, millions of soldiers wanting to destroy Israel, and that's when he's going to pour out his wrath. He's going to start out with all the enemies of Israel during the Great Tribulation. In verse 9, Joel chapter 3 says, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men, let all the men of war draw near, and let them come up. Verse 12, it says, Come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Multitudes and multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and their stars will diminish their brightness. We've seen that in the book of Revelation, how the sun and the moon, the stars, they're going to be dimmed during this great tribulation that the world has never seen. And at the end of this, when all the enemies of Israel come into this valley, that's when Jesus will begin his judgment on this world and all this world's powers and all of the evil of humanity. In verse 20, it tells us that when this winepress was trampled outside the city, again, it's outside of Jerusalem in that valley, the blood came out of the winepress up to the horse's bridle for 1,600 furlongs. This tells us that it's somewhere around 184 to 200 miles of warfare. 
of soldiers, of tanks or horses, right? Whatever's going on here. And there's going to be so much blood and so much carnage that the blood will either splatter up five feet up into the horse's bridle or there's going to be a literal river of blood in this valley that will be caused by the judgment and destruction of Jesus Christ. And he's going to walk through that river and then go to Jerusalem to establish his new kingdom. Isaiah chapter 63 verse 3 says, For I have trodden them in my anger and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments and I have stained all my robes. For the day of vengeance is in my heart and the year of my redeemed has come. One final note, the ancient historian Josephus, I'll just uh, sum it up. The ancient historian Josephus, he says in 70 AD when the Romans were destroying Israel, when they were destroying Jerusalem, they were setting fire to all the houses. And now every person that they come in contact with, they would just thrust them through with the sword. Every single person they saw. Houses on fire and there's so much killing that they literally blockaded the roads with dead bodies stacked up. And this ancient historian Josephus says there was so much blood running through the cities of Jerusalem that it started to put out the fires of many houses. So again, we hear about this blood. Ah, that can't be real. That can't be true. You hear about the ancient wars. We hear about the civil wars and the blood that was shed during that time period. And that's going to look like nothing when you have millions of soldiers gathered together to destroy God's people fighting against the Lamb. So how do we apply such a chapter, right? I'll tell you how not to apply it. Don't go to your unsaved uh, friends and family members and say, hey, here's a teaching I want you to listen to, right? That might not be the case. Pray, maybe they've heard it and they really need to hear about the wrath of God. But keep in mind what God tells us. It's not his wrath that brought us to repentance. It's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, It's his grace. It's his mercy. Don't be that person on the side of the road, turn or burn or anything like that. Don't be that person. It is the love of God that leads us to repentance. In the Gospels, who were the people that Jesus, you saw his wrath come out? It was the Pharisees. It was the people that they were trying to act more holy than they really were. That's where you see the wrath of Jesus coming out. So if we want to be careful, we should look at our own lives. Man, am I coming to church and trying to act more holy than thou? I'm a jerk to my family. I'm a jerk at work. And now I come to church and I try to act like I'm all holy with pomp and circumstance, right? That's what we should be careful of. But how should we apply this? This should stir our hearts to want to share the gospel more and more. Because when we sit and we meditate on the atrocity of what is hell, right? wrath and torment and torture for all of eternity there's no more just thinking of our family members ah they're they're a good person right it doesn't matter if they're a good person do they have a relationship with jesus christ do you hear do you have a relationship with jesus christ do you have that enduring faith that you've been able to see different trials and those trials have produced not you giving up but they've produced perseverance within you that's what scripture tells us That's what we should be looking at in this chapter. Lord, give me a heart for the lost. I don't want to see my loved ones, my friends, my co-workers spending eternity in torture. That's what we should be looking at. We should be looking at our own lives. Lord, give me this perseverance. Lord, give me this endurance. Your word says we have not because we ask not. So Lord, I pray and I ask for this endurance. 
Help me to hear your word and apply it to my life so that my home would be built upon the rock. And in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins. What side of the coin will you be on, right? The end of Revelation tells us that we're going to actually come with him in this final battle. In the final battle, we're going to come with him at the end of the age, at the end of the millennium. We're going to come with him. He's going to be on his horse, and we're all going to be on our horses following him. Are you going to be there next to me? We're looking at, hey, this is what we talked about in Revelation, right? Remember when we talked about that? Always think of Billy Rutledge, right? Or will we be those grapes of wrath waiting for the oncoming wrath of the Lamb of God? And again, how we started, it doesn't have to happen. God willed that it wouldn't happen to you. God desires that it would not happen in you. That's why he's having us go through this chapter. Because he's warning you, he's warning me of the oncoming wrath and judgment. And he's saying, humble yourself today. Make that decision today to come to me, confess your sin, and follow me for the rest of your days. But hey, let's all stand. Worship team, you can come up. Pastors will be up front if you need prayer. Again, I encourage you to be praying for Vacation Bible School. If you're free tonight at 6 o'clock, we'll be gathering to pray as well. If you need prayer, you got any questions, you can ask the pastors up front. So, Lord, we just love you, Lord. And uh, God, thank you for your grace and mercy, Lord. We thank you for your long suffering towards us, God. Uh, So many of us, Lord. I look at my own life and how much mercy and grace you poured out chances and second and third and thousands of chances lord thank you for that grace and mercy and lord i pray that we'd be merciful lord that we would be those who extend mercy that we'd be those blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy god i pray that that would be us today that we would be showing the lost the love and the kindness that once drew us to repentance god may we be that for others as well Lord, give us a heart for the lost. Lord, help us to meditate on hell and what that's really going to be like, Lord, so that we can get over our shame, we could get over our pena, we could get over the what-ifs and what will men think of me, and we can just consider how short the time is, God. So, Lord, we just love you. Again, thank you for the joy of being able to gather with one another in your presence. We love you. We thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.